All right, so we are in uh, Revelation, and we are in chapter uh, 3, and this is uh, everybody's favorite city, which is uh, Laodicea, and that starts in uh, verse 14. And I'll start just by reading it. And and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so first off, the city. The city is in Asia Minor, uh, what's now Turkey. It was named after a lady by the name of Laodice, who was the wife of Antiochus II. And again, for those of you who don't remember your history, Alexander, when he died, left his empire to his four principal generals. And the two that we are concerned about, because they have to do with Israel, were the Seleucids, who were in owned Syria and basically east to India, and the Ptolemies, who had Egypt. Okay, And so you have Syria on the north and Egypt on the south with Israel in between. And so the Ptolemies and the Seleucids spend the next several hundred years basically fighting over Israel. And you all know Antiochus, who was known as Epiphanes, And he's the one that is written about extensively in the book of the Maccabees. This is his great-grandfather, Antiochus II. And his wife is Laodice, and and she is the one after whom this city is named. It's a merchant city, and it is not naturally defensible. In other words, it, it doesn't have, you know, rivers on both sides and, or, you know, high, uh, hills or anything like that, that it's naturally military defensible. Since it's full of merchants, businessmen, and since it is not naturally defensible, what that leads to is an attitude of compromise. You know, in business, for those of you who are in business, you don't make money in business by proving your customers wrong and you're right. The way you make money in business is by figuring out what he wants, coming to an accommodation, and, you know, confrontation in business, especially with you and your customer, is a no-win situation. It's a very wealthy city. Uh, Lots of money there, and of course that's reflects in the letter. 
several things that it's known for. Uh, apparently the sheep in that valley are black wool, and they were known for textiles made out of this black wool, both cloth and, and carpets and those kinds of things. So again, one of the things that they were famous for was uh, black wool. The other thing that they were famous for is they had a, uh, a medical facility there. I don't know what you'd call it in today's terms. But they were, they were famous for their ophthalmic ointments. Uh, and they, they compounded uh, eye ointments um, and were, were well known for that. Um, the city got its water from a hot spring that was about six miles away. So by the time the water came to the city via aqueduct, it was lukewarm. Okay? So again, everything about the history of the city fits in with, with the letter. All right. So the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation... Why does Yeshua choose that particular set of titles for himself? A couple of things. One thing about this church that you can, one way you can describe this church in one word is self satisfied. That's two words, you know, self satisfied. And one of the things about them is that they think that they know the truth. Now, if we look at Laodicea as, look at this letter as prophetic, one of the things that I will suggest they represent is what we see as mainline Christianity today. Methodists, Episcopalians, Catholics, Baptists, the established church. And one of the things about the established church is that they resist change, the Catholic offshoots don't spend a lot of time in the Bible. Baptists do. But they sort of have a doctrine that they're really happy with. And they aren't really uh, friendly to any challenge to their doctrine, especially based on Scripture. In other words, you can go into have an argument, and, and I'm most familiar with Episcopalians because that's where I came from, you can go in and have an argument with a good Episcopalian and you can show them in Scripture where it says this and they'll say, well, yeah, I know, but you know, in our church we have this three-legged stool. We've got tradition, we've got reason, and we've got Scripture. And you've only got one stool there and there's the other two legs of the stool. And yeah, I know what it says, but you know. So one of the reasons that Yeshua is calling himself the faithful and true witness is because he is coming, writing against a church that believes that it has all the answers. The beginning of God's creation. Well, what's the dominant heresy that's floating around in the world today? Evolution. I mean, all, lots of lots of heresies flow from that one. Here's the guy that was there at the creation, right? says so in the Bible, right? He, say, he, he was there. And he's saying, I'm a faithful and true witness, and I was there at the creation. And what I'm suggesting to you is one of the things that's floating around in lots and lots of mainline churches today is compromises with evolution. 
And again, I've had conversations with you know, good Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Lutherans, you know, Baptist, whatever, and they'll say things like, well, yeah, I believe the Bible, and I understand what it says, but I think God used evolution. And what I'm suggesting that is, is an attempt to have your foot in both camps. In other words, yeah, the Bible says that, and, and I do go to church every week, and I've got to do this, but I get laughed out of the cocktail parties if I stand up there and say that God did it in seven days. Nobody will talk to me anymore, and they'll all laugh at me. Yeah, sure. There are lots of, there's lots of rationalizations. Sure, the comment was that one of the things that they'll say is that uh, a day is a thousand years, so why not 7,000 years or 7 million years? Or And the problem is that up until the 19th century, the educated people in the society were the churchmen. And so in any town, whatever, if you wanted to go and have a good philosophical discussion or you wanted to talk about science or anything else, you basically went to the clergy because they were the ones who were educated. And what happened in the 19th century, the Age of Enlightenment, is the scientific community started studying things and they found stuff that appeared to them to contradict Scripture. Furthermore, they spoke a language that the clergy didn't speak, which is to say mathematics. And I don't, and I still haven't looked up this quote, but there was a, a quote from a fairly prominent atheist naturalist that says basically that they ran the church out of cosmology by a rather simple application of tensor calculus. Now, what that means for those of you who are not engineers is the church used to be have control over cosmology. Cosmology is life, the universe, and everything. How did all this start? What is it? And what's its purpose? That's cosmology, right? That used to be the exclusive province of the church. Well, when astronomy and, not astrology, but astronomy and so forth really started going big in the 19th century, and you had telescopes, and you had microscopes, and you had the ability to extend your senses in all sorts of direction, plus you had the development of calculus and higher mathematics at that same time, and people discovered that God was a mathematician, which is to say that they could describe the things of God in mathematical terms, what they were doing is they were talking about things that had been the church's province in a language that the churchmen didn't understand. So you have a, a, a scientific conference where people are talking about quarks and quasars and, and, and atoms and molecules and all that kind of stuff, they're describing the very stuff of the universe, but they're using a language that is foreign to what's written in the Bible. So all of a sudden, the clergy discovered it wasn't the most educated group in the room. And your choice then is to stand there and look stupid in front of everybody, in front of the people that everybody else is now agreeing is smart. And our new high priests, by the way, are scientists. In other words, if you want to sell something here, all you've got to do is describe it as scientific. It's scientifically proven that, and, and, and you go from there, regardless of what it is, because our new high priests are not, no longer godly, they are scientific. So what happened to the church was society turned from them as an authority to science as an authority, and the church didn't want to 
be left out in the cold, so you had clergy say, oh, well, how can we reconcile this new truth of evolution or whatever with the truth of the Bible? And you have, like the Pope, for example, has recently come out with a statement saying, yeah, evolution is just fine. You have the church has been intellectually neutered, if you will, by science. Okay? Now, what Yeshua here is saying in his letter is, um, okay, all you guys that think you know how all this was put together, I was there. And what I'm telling you is that this stuff that these people are peddling and you are buying is not true. I am the faithful and true witness. I was there. I saw it. I know how it happened. And my account of it, which is scripture, is correct. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that the reason that he uses this particular set of titles for himself is because it is specific to the intellectual and spiritual state of the church he's writing to, which is the same as the intellectual and spiritual state of much, much of mainline Christianity today. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now Tom, interestingly, on Tuesday had a really good interpretation of that, which I liked. The way most people have read the church of Laodicea is there's nothing good there. And, and once you're in Laodicea, you're toast. The way Tom re- read it, and I agree with him, I like it, is being spat out of the mouth is by way of correction. So when you get spat out of Yeshua's mouth and skid across the linoleum on your butt, it is by way of him getting your attention. It is not the case that those in Church of Laodicea are in fact lost, damned, and gone forever. Because we see later on that there are going to be quite a few that come out of that church and are conquerors. Now, the thing about neither hot nor cold that's interesting is, again, for those of you who are of an engineering persuasion, it takes a heat difference to do work. Every engine, every, your, your body, everything, anything that moves requires a heat difference. Okay? It doesn't matter whether it's from cold to hot or from hot to cold. In other words, you, as long as you've got a heat difference, you can do stuff. When there is no heat difference, there are no works. And notice that there are no works in this church. There are no works in this church because there is no passion, which is another way of saying heat difference. So, I mean, it works on, on, on every level that in order to do anything, you've got to be either hot or cold. And from there you can do stuff. All right, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All right, again, one of the characteristics of the mainline churches today is they are physically rich. If you look at, and again, the one I'm familiar with is the Episcopal Church, but I'm sure the others are the same. The only reason that they're experimenting with queer... uh, bishops is because they have these tremendous endowments that basically allows them to be 
isolated and insulated from the laity. For example, and, and again, this, I'm not necessarily picking on the Episcopalians, that's just one I happen to know. When they went into this experiment with feminism, queer bishops, and so forth, all of that is done by the church hierarchy. Down in the trenches, people are leaving that church in droves because they are going away from the Word of God. And the only reason they can do that is because they don't have to worry about the collection plate. One of the things that happens in Scripture and the way God sets it up is Levites are supported by laity. God has set it up so that the Levites are supported by people. However, he has also set it up so that the Levite does not come and get his tithe. The tithe has to be given to the Levite by the person. So if you have a Levite that runs off the rails, he starves. Because what happens is the laity will then take their tithe and give it to someone who has not run off the rails. The other part of that is being rich can be misinterpreted. Because one of the blessings of God is that he prospers you. Right? We all believe prosperity is a blessing. I do. So here you have a church that is wealthy and prosperous in a physical sense. And one of the things that they're doing then is taking that as, oh, God is blessing us. And what they've done then is insulated themselves from correction. And what Yeshua is saying here is, no, you have a misunderstanding of who you are. You are, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. All right, let's stop there for a minute. What does that mean? What do you suppose gold refined by fire might be? I will gently suggest to you that it's character. Because what develops character? Adversity. Yeah, adversity develops character, right? If you go through your life and nothing ever ruffles your pretty little pinafore and you just sort of sail through life, what kind of a character are you likely to have? What I'm suggesting to you here is gold refined by fire is character. And that's what he wants to give you. He will refine you if you will let him. So then the next thing we get is white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. That's purity. One of the things to understand is being naked is not good, but we were not designed to wear clothes. Okay? Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were not wearing clothes, but they were not naked. Okay? And as soon as they ate of the fruit, they became naked. And that was not good. And they realized it wasn't good, and they immediately went out and grabbed fig leaves and tried to cover themselves up. And God said, no, nope, that ain't going to work. And God then sacrificed animals and 
covered them. And the thing to understand here is that garments are a reminder of our rebellion. Okay? And in fact, in the, in the Hebrew, the word beged for clothing is the same root word as rebellion. So the fact that we are wearing clothes is a constant reminder to us that we are fallen. The Bible uses white garments symbolically here, and, and, and I, I suspect also literally, to indicate that basically now your naked in, nakedness is covered as it should be, as opposed to as you do it. And oh, by the way, what color were the textiles that were exported by Laodicea? Black. Black. It, that's historical. It's not scriptural, it's historical. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All right. And again, one of the things we said is that Laodicea was well known for its ophthalmic ointments. So again, what he's talking about here is in the context of the city. But what is anoint your eyes so that you may see? What are we talking about there? One of the things that it says in Isaiah where it talks about idols. They make idols that have eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, hands but do not handle, mouths but do not touch or do not, or do not taste and do not speak. And then what it says is very interesting. And those who worship them become like them. Mm-hmm. And one of Yeshua's things that he says over and over and over again in the gospel, he who has ears to hear and eyes to see, see Okay, And what I'm suggesting to you is that's a reference back to Isaiah. And what it's saying is, if you are not in idolatry of some kind, and idols don't necessarily mean little doll-shaped figures, it can mean lots of things. If you are not in idolatry of some kind, then your eyes will be open and your ears will be open and you will be able to hear and see properly. If, in fact, you are tied up with the world and involved in idolatry, what it does is it dulls your eyes and ears because you become like what you worship. So what we've talked about here in in 3, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'm suggesting we're talking about character. We're talking about purity, and we are talking about getting out of the world and into the kingdom of God. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And again, that's the central message of all these letters, is repent. Now, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let's go back to Sinai. The children of Israel stood at the mountain. God tried to write his Torah on their hearts, and they would not. What's the next thing that happened? Anybody know? It's not the golden calf. Yeah. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Avihu and the 70 elders went up and did lunch with God. Ooh. Pattern. Right? So what it's saying here 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock, which is to say, I want to write my Torah on your heart, but I can't do that unless you're willing. And if you are willing, then I will write my Torah on your heart, and then we will eat together. So what I'm saying to you is that the pattern that was established at Sinai, which is, and, and, and again, we've got some new folks here, Sinai was supposed to be the consummation of a marriage. Because in Exodus 19, God makes an offer to Israel through Moses, an offer and a formal acceptance. Okay, So you have a ketubah there. The, the incident at the foot of Sinai was supposed to be a consummation. And just as in a human marriage, at the consummation, what happens is the man puts something into the body of a woman for the purpose of passing on life. That's what the consummation is, is the passing on of life from a man to a woman, and a new life is created. That's what's supposed to have happened at Sinai. God wants to put his Torah into the hearts of Israel to bring forth new life. Israel said, no, I'm not going to do that. And Israel said, Moses, you go up and talk to him. Tell us what he said, come on back down, and you tell us, and we'll do what he says. So this consummation that was intended to happen did not. But the pattern continues, because the next thing they had is they go up there and they eat together. So what Yeshua is saying here in this letter is when that thing actually happens the way I want it to happen, and I am able to put my life within you, then we will have this supper together as I wanted to do back at Sinai, but it didn't happen. 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so now we've got conquerors and thrones and all sorts of stuff. And to see that, I'm going to take you to Luke 22, Luke 22:24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So this is a dispute among the disciples. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So what he's saying is, according to the world, the one who reclines and is served is the greater, but I, who am the greatest, am in fact serving. 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. Notice almost the same words. I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, almost the same words. 
In, in Revelation, it's the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay? So this is basically the fulfillment of a promise that was made back when he was walking on the earth with the disciples. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. So I'm in 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll pick it up at the beginning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try in trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, again, what he's talking about is future judgment. And then 2 Timothy 2, 11, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So again, what he's saying to the overcomers in Revelation is, those of you who overcome or conquer, I will do the things that I have promised, both in person and through Paul. And then finally, overcomers were actually in, in, I think, close to today's reading, 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. But this, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. All right, so how do you know that you love the children of God when you love God and obey his commandments? And again, what we would assert in this church is his commandments are start with Moses and go forward. They don't start with Matthew. They start with Moses. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Same word, overcomes, conquers. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? So what we're talking about in Revelation is a promise to the one who overcomes and conquers. What we're talking about in John is how you figure that out. The overcomer or the conqueror, then, is the one who loves God, who loves his neighbor, and who keeps the commandments of God. Okay? And, of course, when you're dealing with the rest of the church, the question always devolves into what are the commandments of God? And you will get various waffly answers... Um, and what I will assert is that the commandments of God start with Moses and the commandments of Yeshua start with Moses and they go forward and Yeshua himself didn't give you anything new nor does Paul Okay, it's all the same and it's all Moses it came from there first promise then is the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, and then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, you have this same formula. One thing about that formula before we go on, 
one of the things that's going to happen in the rest of Revelation is there's going to be a distinction made between the people of God and the earth dwellers. And the earth dwellers, I am going to suggest to you, are the sons of Esau. And those people are going to cleave to the things of the earth, and what he's telling you here is don't you do that. One other point that I wanted to make, and I, I made it on Tuesday and I skipped by it today. Come back to this thing at Sinai, where he stands at the doors, door and knocks. One of the things that I think is going to happen, and this is Johnnyology, okay? You don't have to buy this if you don't like it, but it makes sense to me. The children of Israel stood at the base of the mountain, and God tried to be intimate with them. He tried to write his law on their hearts, and they would not. Okay? Yeshua, I believe, is going to do the same thing. He's going to stand at the door and knock and say, I've got my Torah here. Can I come in? Will you open your heart to me and let me write my Torah there? One of the things that he has done is he has settled the sin question. By his sacrifice, he has done away with the penalty for willful sin. That is covered. That is washed away. That is gone. So when you stand before God, and every one of us will, when you stand before him, you are not going to be standing there as a sinner because your sin is dealt with. He's paid for that. So you don't have to go crawling up on your belly and say, oh, I'm such a worthless, miserable wretch. Your sin's covered. The question is going to be, are you going to stand up before him and are you going to let him write his Torah on your heart or are you going to turn away and say, I will not? That's the question that's going to be asked of you, I believe. And those who say, I will not, I will gently suggest to you that's what the outer darkness is. Because just as the children of Israel stood and said, we will not, and then they went into the wilderness for 40 years and they died. Those who stand in front of God and he says, okay, sin's dealt with. I'm not imputing sin to you. The question now becomes, are you going to be mine? Are you going to let me write my law in your heart? And the problem that every one of us has, myself very much included, is when you stand face to face with God, you become really insignificant. And most of us are really, really fond of us. Okay, So when you stand in front of God, the question is going to be, am I going to come to you or am I going to insist on being me? Am I going to insist on doing it my way? Am I going to insist on my ego, if you will? Or am I going to turn to God, let him write his law in my heart, and become whatever it is that he wants me to be? That's the question. And it's a really hard question. Okay, and it has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with whether or not you're going to come to him. And, and as I say, this is Johnnyology. You don't have to buy it if you don't like it. But I think that's going to be what happens. And, and sheep and goats, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Some are going to cleave to God at that point, and some are going to turn away. And, and that's what I believe it means to be hurled into the outer darkness. Because you will not 
have his law written on your heart. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.